Let's pray. Go ahead and have a seat. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, um, we need your power in our lives, in our marriages, and Lord, we want to see your power uh, move among us. And so, Lord, as we come to this time to reflect on your word to us, Lord, we ask that um, you would help us just a little bit to grasp that power that is ours in Jesus. Lord, guide our meditation this day. We may go out in this place to grow in faith and in life and closer to you. This we pray in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. So last week, which was Easter, by the way, Pastor Mike kicked this off excellently by, by leading us into the end of Mark's gospel that, that is the worst win ending ever, which we discovered really wasn't an ending, but rather it is a beginning. That we learn that, that what God is doing through Jesus isn't over, it's just getting going. And that power of the resurrection is at work in you and in me. That power of the resurrection, that same thing that, that rose Jesus from the dead, is working in our lives. And as Mike read just a moment ago from Acts chapter 4, that that power of the resurrection, that powerful, grace-filled stuff, isn't just a spiritual thing. Because I think when we think about spiritual power, we think it's, it's just spiritual stuff. But we learn in that Acts reading that it has real-world implications. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there was no needy persons among them. In other words, what God was doing in their midst was so great that it spilled over from the spiritual part of their lives into the reality, into the physical parts of their lives. And I think that was something that was rampant in the early church. And I like what Mike did with numbers, so I did that too. So, so let's do some numbers real quick this morning. At the time of the ascension, they say that there was probably about 120 believers in Jesus. So think, think about this for a moment. 120 believers in about 33 AD. Fast forward to 100 AD, and there are now 25,000 believers in Jesus. Fast forward another 200 years, and there are now 2 million believers in Jesus. That's incredible. That's powerful. That's amazing. I did the math on this, and I'm not a mathematician, and so I'm not going to tell you the percentage of growth that is because I'm sure I got it wrong, but it's amazing. And you got to keep in mind that during this time, Christianity, or the way as it was called then, was an illegal religion. And during this time, there were no church buildings. There was no place like St. John's there was no place where you could get together 400 people at one time or 700 over in the sanctuary. That place didn't exist. Most of the churches that they had were converted houses that you could stuff with a shoehorn like 30 people into. And then on top of that, there was no institution, there was no professional leadership. I mean, the founders were fishermen and tax collectors. These were not the educated and the learned folk. There was no seeker-sensitive services. There was no youth groups. There was no worship bands. There was no, what did I write down here? No seminaries and no commentaries or other materials to help people understand what the Bible was all about. And on top of that, they didn't have the Bible as we know it. 
They had the Old Testament and then these Gospels that the apostles started circulating and the letters that Paul started sending around. And then on top of that, we thought the old membership class was hard at 14 weeks. So we, we shrank it down to a discover experience so that you could get to know St. John's and, and understand what this Christianity thing was all about. So seven weeks. And some people are still like, ah, it's too hard. Back in the day, if you wanted to be a Christian, it was like a year-long period of investigation, of discerning whether or not you were welcomed or worthy enough to be welcomed in. And yet the church of God grew like mad. You say, okay, that was an early church thing. There were people back then that are not like people now. It was a different period. you got to understand, Nathan, that sort of thing doesn't happen anymore. Fast forward, 1949. Two million people are living in China that are Christians. Mao Zedong comes to power, and he imposes one of the harshest persecutions of the church that has ever taken place. He kills all the first-tier leaders. Anybody that's like a, a president or a seminary professor or anything like that kills them all. Second-tier leaders, the, the pastors at local churches, he either imprisoned or killed them. He repossessed all of their buildings. Fast forward 27 years, 1976. The bamboo curtain, as it's called, fell. And for the first time, Christians were let back into the country. Missionaries, of course, under strict supervision. And they expected to find what? A battered church. Uh, disciples that didn't really know the word of God. Disciples that were struggling. What did they find? A vibrant and growing church that was growing like mad and is still counting. A church of 60 million people. And these churches would pass around just a page of Scripture back and forth between these church houses so they could learn God's Word, so that they could grow together in faith. I did the math on that one. That's like 3,000% growth in 27 years. Amazing, unreal. And so then the question I ask is, where is that kind of power at work in my life? Where is that kind of power at work at St. John's? Where, where is that power? How can I have that power? Because that power that does amazing things, that transforms people's lives, that, that causes them to entirely switch their way of thinking and their worldview. I want that. And I think sometimes what we get wrong is when we think about God's power and Him being able to do something in our lives, we come to Him with our circumstances. We come to Him with, with trouble at work, looking for God's power. We come to Him with, with troubles in our marriage. We come to Him with troubles with our family, with sickness. We come to Him with decisions about our, our future. And we want the power of God to work. And so as I, I thought about this, I started asking another question. I started asking the question of what might be getting in the way? What's getting in the way of God's power working in our lives, in our midst? And I started thinking about St. John's. It's a great place to be here, isn't it? You guys were here for Easter. It was awesome. 
a great time of worshiping together. And I think we look back at the history of St. John's, we look at the sanctuary, and we think about what people, our ancestors did way, way back when by, by sacrificing and giving up to build the church. And we look back at them and we think, man, wow, it was amazing to see what they did, and we could never do anything like that again. And you think, see, I think that's where we get in trouble. It wasn't their greatness that allowed them to do that. In fact, if you think back on it, it wasn't that they had so much stuff that they were able to just do this like it was nothing. They did it rather out of their weakness. They did it in fear and trembling. They did it not knowing whether or not it was going to work. They mortgaged their farms. See, it's not about them. It's about their God, who is our God, and Him being at work, and Him having His way, and Him doing what He does. See, Paul would say, our problem is is that we don't know what we have. We as Christians don't know what we have, and in order to embrace the power of Jesus into our lives, we need to understand what we've got. And for that, I want to take you to Ephesians chapter uh, 1, beginning at verse 15. And and in these words, it's kind of crazy. We break it up in English, but it's one long run-in sentence. It just sentence after sentence, no punctuation. You get this idea that that Paul is passionate, that he's excited, that he's going in, and his scribe is just scribbling as fast as he can just to keep up. He says, for this reason... Ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all God's people, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. And this is the the center, the key of it right here. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people and his incomparably great power for us to believe. That power is the same power as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. See, here Paul could have prayed about all sorts of things. Uh, These people in Ephesus, they were persecuted. They had all sorts of trouble with government. They had all sorts of things going on in their lives. And instead of praying about those things, what does Paul pray for? You see, he's saying to them that this is the thing that you need. More than anything else, you need this. And he he sees, he sees, if you have this thing, even if you have bad circumstances in your life, if you're struggling in your life and you have this thing, you will process those hard circumstances, those bad circumstances, in such a way that it's going to make you great. And he's also saying that if if you don't have this, It doesn't matter how good your circumstances are. 
In fact, it would be better for you to have bad circumstances than good circumstances if you don't have this. Because when you have good circumstances, you get proud and you get, you start relying on yourself. And what happens in life? Things fall apart. Eventually, you're going to find yourself in hard circumstances and you're going to find that you're shallow and weak instead of strong. So Paul is saying, you need this more than anything else. And what's more than that, you already have it, you just don't know it. And so he goes into explaining it and let me, let me put it into relief like this. Imagine there's an eight-year-old girl in an orphanage. What does she want more than anything else in the world? She wants a mom. She wants somebody to love her, to be in her life. And one day this woman walks in. And this woman starts talking with this little girl. And as the little girl and the, the woman are talking, the little girl's heart starts to go out to this woman. As the woman talks, her heart goes out to the little girl and all of a sudden, they're, they're crying, they're, they're longing for something, they're hoping for something. And the woman says to the little girl, I want you to be my daughter. Fills that, that great, that big felt need that she has, but the little girl doesn't do this, right? She doesn't say, let's, um, let's see your bank accounts, because you want me to go to college, Right? What kind of future am I going to have in, in 30 years if I go home with you today? I think I might wait around for a better offer. No, she doesn't say that. She says, Mama, I'm ready to go home. This is what I need. See, what, what Peter and Paul, they both talk about this. They said when we, we first come to faith, we're like newborn babes just craving pure spiritual need. Children, by their very nature, just crave immediate needs. They don't think about the long term. They think about what's immediate, what's right now. What do I need for the next moment? I got a two-and-a-half-year-old at home. I know all about that. What do I need now? And that's as it should be. And that's how we as people generally come to faith. That's generally how we come to Jesus. Even if we've been a Christian for a while, that's sometimes how we come to Jesus. We come to Jesus and we say, Jesus, I've got this big decision to make in my life and I don't know which way to go. Help me. Jesus, my, my child's sick. I need your help. Jesus, my marriage is struggling. I need your help. We come to him with immediate needs and saying, Jesus, I need you to fix this. And what Paul is saying is you've got so much more. You have so much more in Jesus that you don't even know. So, so let's extend that illustration. Let's say that that woman that adopted that little girl, she's not just, you know, an average run-of-the-mill Orange County person, which means she's doing better than most, but rather she is one of the most powerful and influential people in the world. And she's not going to tell the little girl about all that stuff right now. But she's going to want to make sure that in time, that that little girl realizes who she is by virtue of who has called her daughter. 
She wants to make sure that that little girl knows that, that you are going to be able to do so much, that you're going to have so much influence, and you're going to be able to help so many people you can't even imagine. And she's got to help her come to that realization. And that's what Paul is saying here about us. starts out by saying, I pray that the eyes of your heart, which is kind of a weird way of saying something there. And what he's saying there is he's saying that he wants the thing that drives our heart to be this new life resurrection power that comes to us in Jesus. You see, there's this old power that we all live by, and this is what Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 15. There's this spirit of the world that is naturally going to decay and die. The, the energy that we're talking about that runs out. And Paul is saying there's a new energy coming into us by the resurrection of Jesus. And that is the thing that makes our hearts beat. A heartbeat that is never going to stop. It starts beating now in faith and it's going to beat on into eternity. And then he says that you have been called the hope to which he has called you. In other words, the call is not about you, it's about him. It's not about your power, it's not about your status, it's not about how good of a Christian you are, it's about his call on you, his adoption of you. And then he goes on to say, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people. I had to read that a few times to try and figure out what he was getting after there. But did you catch it? What is his inheritance? The people. Yeah, it's kind of obvious, but you don't think like, wait a second, is that right? It's us. We are his inheritance. We are his glory. He glories in us. He has his fullness in us. He is, we are his body, as he says later. He's looking for us to fill out and to express to the world who he is. And he reveals his glory to the world through us. And then he goes on to say, It is incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is for us. And that same power is the same mighty power that he used to raise Jesus from the dead. He says that power is available to us. And I think we don't often grasp that. How amazing, how incredible that power is. Have you guys seen the, the Jesus statue over in the sanctuary? What is Jesus standing on? It's not the world, it's the universe. The king of the universe has adopted you as a son, as a daughter, and his power, his resurrection power is available to you, and he wants to make you great. Despite of your circumstances, he wants to make you great so that in you, the world sees him. So how do we get some of that power in our lives? Unfortunately, this isn't a magic genie, rub, rub the, the lamp in a certain way and it works. But rather, this is, is something that by faith and prayer, we come before God. You know, every time Paul prays for people, this is kind of what he says. 
And so the first thing you can do to, to have this kind of power in your life is pray this prayer. Pray this Ephesians chapter 1 prayer for yourself. Pray that God would open up the highs of your heart, that you would know the hope to which he has called you. Pray that you would understand the riches of his glorious inheritance that is in you. And pray that you would know that power, that power that rose Jesus from the dead. You know, along those lines, practical action right here. Everybody that's uh, had a, a little bit of um, little kind of withdrawal symptoms from not playing with their phone for a little bit, here comes reprieve. Take out your phone. Take out your phone. We're, we're, we're going to fix that itch right now. And I want you to set an alarm in your phone for 2.05 p.m. And put a note in your phone to pray for the power of resurrection in your life at 2.05 p.m. every day. And now I'll tell you what that means as you're doing that. A church just up the road from us uh, dropped a pin in the, in the map and, and said, all right, how many people live within 20 miles of us? And they came back with 5.8 million people. And they said, what would it look like if our church began to pray for the power of God to work in our hearts and in our lives in such a way that we reached 1% of the population around us? What if we pray that, that God would use us to reach just 1% of that 5.8 million people, which would mean we'd reach 58,000 people? That's kind of nuts, right? I think that's crazy. And that's the point. When we reach for power, when we reach to try and do things in our world and in our lives, we look to our strength, to our power, instead of trusting God and His power in our lives. So, 2.05. Military time, 14.05. There are 140,500 people in Orange. What would it look like if we as St. John's reached... 1,405 people for the name of Jesus. It's a big ask. And I'm just asking you guys. It's not happening in any of the other services. Say, well, Nathan, it'd be more reasonable if you gave this announcement to all of the services, all the people at St. John's. Yeah, probably. But I believe that God can move in powerful ways that are beyond our expectations and our hopes. And in order for us to rely on the power of God, it has to be something that is outside of our realm of possibility. So I encourage you over the next week, over the next month, over the next year, to hear that alarm go off on your phone, whether it vibrates in your pocket or whether it scares you out of something you're doing at work, to pray that, that God would be at work in His resurrection power in your life and come back to this chapter in Ephesians and read this prayer for yourself. And get to know these words. And then another way to do this, and, and this is something that, that I'm starting to do in, in my life. And that is ask the question, and when you read something in Scripture, ask the question, how would my life be different if I believe this from the top of my head to the bottom of my toes? How would my life look different if I really believe this about having access to this kind of power in my everyday life? If I really had this kind of identity, if I really had this kind of inheritance? 
And then finally, realize that Jesus prayed this prayer for you. In John chapter 17, not in these words, Jesus prays this prayer for us. That, that we would know the call of the Father, that we would, we would come to understand that we are His glorious inheritance and, and that He would surround us by His power, that He would encourage us and envelop us in His power so that His church would move forward into the world in such a way that nothing can overcome it. But Jesus also prayed this prayer in reverse for Himself. See, when Jesus prayed this prayer and he said, call them, make them your own, he said, reject me. When he said, make them your glorious inheritance, he said, cast me away as worthless, abandon me. When he says, surround them by your power, Jesus said, break me with your power. That's the prayer that Jesus prayed with his very life. That's the prayer that Jesus prayed in the garden when he said, Thy will be done. What would happen? What would happen if we let God's power go in our lives? If we stopped trying to contain it? What would happen if we let God's power have free range? in our hearts, in our lives? It's a scary question. 